All right, so happy 2020. One. Yeah. That wasn't an intentional joke, but it was funny. Um, so this has been a rough one. Um, you know, and of course, I guess, I guess you kind of want to hear something really awesome and encouraging, probably from a booming voice, strapping tall guy that looks like he can take on the world at 500 pounds a piece. Instead, you got me. <laughs> Hi, guys. So I, I'm probably look a little more like Richard Simmons, but I cannot sport the fro. But give your guy, give your guys a, a hug. You can do it. And if there's COVID-19, just duck. When you're short like me, you can duck. So may God grant us a year of mercy, <laughs> please, that we can recover from this. Um, so to make it simpler, I have a very hard subject to talk about. And if you're angry, blame Mr. Charles Pope. <laughs> because he and I had a conversation the last time I taught. And um, he challenged me to put some feet to my lips. And I've been trying to figure out how to do that. So um, I, I guess instead of putting feet to my lips, my lips are just going to run again. But on a more difficult, much more difficult subject. So it's going to be about slavery. It's going to be about the contrast between what might be called biblical slavery and, of course, the slavery that we unfortunately have suffered in this nation. So, and it just so happens that we are, we just wrapped up today, in fact, the, um, the story about Joseph. So, great example of slavery um, as, as we see this, this whole story in his life, watching him being, you know, the favored son, receiving the best education, to now being nothing. And basically, his life is determined at the whim of his master. So I want to talk about this because there is a false narrative about slavery. And honestly, it comes from both sides. And that false narrative usually is that America was built on slavery, that religion um, supports and upholds slavery. I want to go ahead and deal with that. Um, and, and I hope that you'll listen. It's okay to disagree. Uh, call Rabbi. <laughs> so, because I did talk to him about this. Um, but I want to share with you some things that I have been able to share with some people that um, I didn't know. And uh, it has been a pleasure to be able to share some information. Not always good. Not always good. And we have to be fair. You know, we're not going to be putting rose-colored glasses on slavery. It's a horrible thing. It's inexcusable. But what I want to do is I want to show what God intended with biblical slavery. All right, so like I said with Joseph. So let's look at a few things we learn about Joseph, okay? We learn that when he becomes a slave, he's mere property. He has no rights, protections, or representation under the law. He, there is no due process, 
And he can't simply buy his freedom. He's property. Little more than cattle that can talk back. That was Egyptian slavery. But remember what God said. I don't want you to be like the nations around you. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt. So when we consider that, we need to think about, okay, well, if God is saying, I don't want you to be like them and constantly reminding the Jewish people, you were once slaves. What should we learn from that? Clearly, God is wanting us to see something differently than the status quo. So let's talk about slavery in Israel. Interestingly enough, uh, this is from the Jewish Virtual Library, the slave in Jewish law is really only a worker or a servant. So, of course, the Hebrew word is eved, which means essentially a a servant. Uh, Implication, of course, might be more uh, like a bond servant things like that, but certainly not the concept of slavery that we're familiar with. And what I want to talk about is, of course, it gets really complicated when you're reading the Bible, what slave are we talking about? Because like so many other things, you know, the Bible is very brief, and when it's translated into English, a lot of information is lost in translation. But there are different types of quote-unquote slaves. And I'm going to use that term, but I'm hoping that it will kind of have a little bit different uh, sound when we say it. So there was the Hebrew slave. Now, the Hebrew slave had, um, you know, two, two, really two kind of categories. One was a pauper. One was somebody who was very poor, destitute, not able to stand on their own two feet. So they would go to a neighbor who was well-to-do, plantation owner of sorts or farmer, whatever, um, and they would go to them and basically request to be their slave, a, a contract for hire. Now, this was usually at a reduced rate. What Jewish law tells us is that somebody that would do this, um, they would get paid about half of what a normal person would. But at the same time, they also lived in the residence. Uh, He clothed them. Hashem gave strict orders of how to take care of this bonds person. Um, So so this would be a, a guy that would do that. He couldn't provide for his family. Here was another way. And typically the idea was is that he would learn a new trade in the midst of doing so. So once he gets done working uh, for this, uh, you know, for this uh, landowner, he would then be released with wealth, with a trade, because he was supposed to be taken care of. And that's what Hashem told him to do. Do not mistreat him, for you were once slaves in Egypt. So, uh, but there's another aspect, and this is something that really gets people upset, and that is a man can sell his daughter. Sounds pretty awful. But let me try to roll back the clock a little bit for you to understand, because we need to look at Jewish law to understand a lot of this stuff, okay? So, when a, when a, a woman, a young girl, and of course we're talking young girl, would be uh, sold, Essentially, it's the same thing. The father is not able to provide for her. So he makes an arrangement. And that arrangement is usually a, like an arranged marriage. Like it's a, you know, we think these two are going to work out. 
what do you think? The guy that's the property owner may say, you know what, that's good. And in the meantime, she comes and she works in his house. She's educated. She's clothed. She's taken care of. Now, it doesn't mean that she doesn't see her family anymore. It's just she has an obligation now there. Until something interesting, according to Jewish law, the age of majority for a woman is 12 and a half years old. So at 12 and a half years old, this girl can say, you know what? That dude's ugly. He's only 13 and he's already got hair coming out his nose. I don't want to be married to this guy. And everyone has to honor that she goes free. Or she goes free uh, after the Shemitah, the, the seven-year cycle. So she would work up to six years and then be released in the seventh. Unless she agrees to whatever arrangement it is, uh, you know, marry, marry the guy or, or whatever it was. Um, or she may choose, you know what? It's been good being a member of his household. He's treated me well. I've been well-educated. I've been clothed. I've been cared for. I think I want to stay. She can make that decision at 12 and a half years old, and then at which point she would, the, the, uh, the owner would be required to take care of her until the Yovel, until the year of release. At which point she has to go free if she doesn't marry uh, the young man. So those are the ideas. The whole point of Hebrew slavery was to be able to empower this person to move forward. They've hit a point where they can't reset. So someone, because Hashem said, do not let there be any poor among you, a neighbor says, you know what, I, I could use the help, but I want to bless this family. So that when they leave, they leave empowered to do something better with their lives. So that they don't return to that state. Now I want to talk to the one about the one that's a little more complicated. Just a little. Oh, and before that, they can't mistreat him. That girl's not getting whacked. Nobody's taking a reed stick to her. She is to be treated as a member of the family. Now I want to talk about the resident, or not the resident alien, but the Gentile, the alien slave. Now this one is a little bit different. Um, but what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the legal standing and kind of what, uh, what this slave can do. So, because they had legal status, which is a polar opposite of all the nations around them. They act as an agent of their master, just like a son would. And in that, they're not answerable for any torts. So that this is something that's really important to think about. You know, if you know in our history, if, God forbid, a black man did something that was considered not done, they would be punished harshly. But under Jewish law, he is an agent of his master. So if he makes a mistake... He's doing it on behalf of his master. Therefore, his master is liable for whatever this slave does. Big difference. So he can't get thrown under the bus. You shall not be like the nations around you. He could have personal holdings. He could own property. He could make money. He could generate wealth and purchase his freedom at any time. Or he could earn it at any time. 
the master had to honor it. It wasn't a situation of, well, I know I told you that this is what I paid for your service, um, but I'm not going to release you even though you have it. He can't. And if he does, because of the legal representation in the Torah court, that slave can beseech the court. The court will hear the case and the court will deal with the master. But he's also part of the master's household. He ate the same food. He was a member of the family. And like I said, he had legal representation, protections, and privileges under the Torah. One of them, of course, is Shabbat, required to rest. He cannot be sold to a non-Jew, and this is something that I want to really make a point. Why? Because we know how the heathen treat their slaves. You cannot do that to him. You just saved him. Because the thing was, they couldn't be involved in the slave trade. So if you got a Gentile slave, you probably went to a Gentile slave market outside of Israel, picked this person up. That person may have been a slave their whole life. Now they come into your house. You wash them, clothe them, put them in a place where they are dry, warm, cool, whatever. You take care of them. And it's also interesting, I just recently read on this, no extradition if he flees his master. You're to grant him refuge. Capital punishment if he's murdered because he's a human being. He can also refuse to be circumcised. So remember, remember it says uh, that uh, God told Abraham, he said, you and all of the males in your house are to be circumcised, including your servants. Under Jewish law, he can refuse. And you give him 12 months to think about it. At the end of the 12 months, if he decides he still doesn't want to be circumcised, then he would be sold back to the Gentile. That's the only time. Now, why 12 months? Let's think about it. This guy is allowed to own property. This guy is allowed to buy his freedom at any time. This guy is allowed to convert to Judaism and be granted freedom. This guy can actually marry the slave owner's daughter if they fall in love and it's all good. Freedom there. Huh? Yeah, he does have to convert to do that. Yes, he does it, Dr. David. He does have to convert. But it sounds a little odd, don't you think, for a slave? Why? You shall not be like the nations around you. This was a form of liberation. This was bringing somebody that's a slave from another nation, bringing them over here, and a process of immigration to a godly lifestyle. And like I said, since they can own property, since they can make money, since they can trade and develop wealth, they can buy their own freedom at any time. And that wealth cannot be confiscated from them. I want to share with you uh, something from the Rambam, who was a codifier of Jewish law in the medieval era. He said, it is permissible to work the Gentile slave harshly. 
But even though it is lawful, the quality of benevolence and the paths of wisdom demand of a human being to be merciful and striving for justice. One should not press his heavy yoke on his slave and torment him, but should give him to eat and to drink of everything. The sages of old were in the habit of sharing with the slave every dish they ate. And they fed the cattle as well as the slaves before they themselves sat down to eat. Nor should a master, I actually have my kids do that. I tell them, I'm like, listen, I'm not feeding my animals until you feed yours. (laughs) So they feed their animals and then I feed mine. And they eat a lot of food. But (laughs) I'm I'm dreading when they're teenagers, man. That bill's, it's hefty and they're just that tall. Um, But... It said also, I, I love this, nor should a master disgrace his servant by hand or by words. The biblical law surrendered them to servitude, but not disgrace. You should not madly scream at your servant, but speak to him gently and listen to his complaints. As it is written in Job 31, 13 through 14, if I did despise the cause of my manservant or maidservant, When they contended with me, what then shall I do when God rises up? And when he remembers, what shall I answer? Cruelty is frequently found only among heathens who worship idols. The progeny of our father Abraham, however, the people of Israel, upon whom God bestowed the goodness of the Torah, commanding them to keep the laws of goodness, are merciful are merciful toward all creatures. So too, in speaking of the divine attributes, which he has commanded us to imitate, the psalmist says, his mercy is over all of his works. Whoever is merciful will receive mercy, as it is written, he will be merciful and compassionate to you and to multiply you. Just a wee bit different. So, What I wanted to share with you on that is that, or maybe through a, through a form of argumentation, the only way that you could actually own a slave in Israel is if there was a slave market outside. So there's no slave market, can't own slaves. But the whole point of this is a means to eliminate slavery. It was a process. It was a form of where people could come into a society that valued human life. Come in as a slave. Leave as a free person. And not only that, you didn't have to be a Jew to be freed. You could buy your freedom and live in Israel if you so chose. And here's another thing. If I, God forbid, had a slave and I sold him to a Gentile, immediately by Jewish law, he is free because it's forbidden to sell him to a Gentile. So he's immediately freed. I have to redeem him, and there's nothing I can do about it. I should have taken care of him. I should have built him up, taught him a new trade, prepared him for his own freedom. And here's another thing that I could do, and we have this example with Abraham and Eliezer. Eliezer was his slave, and he was going to inherit him if he didn't have children. He said, who shall inherit? Eliezer, he's all I've got. 
Right now, he's the heir to my estate, my slave. This is, this is what God intended. This slavery is very different. It was absolutely the opposite of what the nations were doing. So I want to talk about American slavery, something that I absolutely and relentlessly abhor. It was inexcusable. And I, and I do believe that many of us are ashamed. I certainly am. That slavery was patterned after Egypt. But what I want to be clear, and if anybody gets angry, call rabbi. This nation was not built on slavery. It existed, yes. But I'm going to show you something that very few people that I've talked to so far have ever heard. And these are in, it's in the handwriting of our founding fathers. This was the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. Now, uh, as you are probably aware, the Declaration of Independence, they had determined that for this document, it wasn't a vote of a majority or two-thirds or anything like that. It had to be unanimous. That's why it says in the subheading, the unanimous declaration of the 13 states of America. So it, so it obviously had some edits. There, most of the edits were just a word here, a word there. Like if you read the first draft, like where it says, um, you know, we hold these things to be self-evident, it, it says something like, we hold this to be perfectly clear. So it's like little things. But this one was a massive paragraph. And it's right in the complaints against the king, which is actually the bulk of this document, where the king did all of these things against the American people. So right before we get to the edit, it says, he incited treasonable insurrections in our fellow subjects with the allurement of forfeiture and confiscation of our property. It's pretty awful. Like here, you take their stuff if you kill them. Um, <clears throat> this is the edit. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery to another hemisphere, and to or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This uh, piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable, ex exec, execrable, yeah, execrable, they're, they're smart, commerce, and that this assemblage of, of horrors might want no fact of disguised die. He has now, uh, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them and murdering the people upon whom he has also obtruded them. 
Thus, paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Just a little bit different. Now, I want want you to see something else, too. In the handwritten copy, you know, their, their punctuation was a little bit different capitalization, things like that. I used to know all that because I used to have this document committed to memory, um, and I don't anymore. But uh, the only section of this document that was actually in all caps was the title. In two words in what I just read. One, Christian. They're challenging. He's not a Christian. Christian wouldn't do this. The other word is men when he's talking about the slave. Men was capitalized. Now, here's the interesting part. Remember I said it was supposed to be a unanimous declaration. That means that somebody didn't like this. Any ideas out of the 13 colonies, how many colonies dissented and wanted it gone? Two. I had said it was one to somebody and I went back and looked. That's why you should always fact check. So, two. I could not find who. I figured probably Georgia. <laughs> yeah. Probably Georgia, probably South Carolina, I don't know. But I will tell you this, it was... Sir? It was actually not Virginia. Yeah, Virginia said, let's get rid of the slaves. They wanted it gone, which let's, let's also point out, where did all of the founding fathers live? Virginia. So our founding fathers said, let's get rid of them. This is an atrocity. They agreed with this. Our founding fathers wanted to do away with slavery, except for two colonies. We'll kick their butt later. So we were almost, we were two colonies away from abolishing slavery. Two colonies away. Because it had to be a unanimous decision. And we never could until the Civil War obliterate it altogether. And I wished we could have done differently. The desire of the overwhelming majority of our founding fathers was for all men to be free is why men was capitalized in this document. Now let's talk about the black heroes of the revolution. Let's talk about Crispus Attucks. He was considered the first martyr of the cause because he is a whaler and he's, you know, on the, on the, uh, excuse me, uh, he's, he's in the harbor hanging out with his guys, eating a meal. He's the only black guy in the group. And the British soldiers started harassing them. And he's like, you know what, I've had enough of this. So he rose up against them. They shot him twice before he went down. But he was protecting his fellow brothers. Now, they died too, unfortunately. But he took the first shots protecting them. And that's one of the, that's one of the murders that took place that actually gave more resolve for our, for our insurrection. Phyllis Wheatley, she was an author, poet, patriot. 
She came over here, originally a free woman, became a slave, became the household maidservant of a family that was well-to-do, which obviously most slave owners were, they have to be, and they were impressed by her intelligence. They taught her to read, to write, granted her her freedom, and then she wrote a letter to George Washington encouraging him, the then General George Washington, encouraging him to stay the course. Hmm. And not only that, he responded. And he signed it, your humble servant. A little bit different history, I think. Obviously not perfect, but different there's also Peter Salem and Salem Poor. Both of them were soldiers. One of them shot a colonial, or not a colonial, God forbid. One of them shot a, a British officer, which of course is major bragging rights. It was a headshot. And with those mus- muskets, they're not super accurate compared to our guns now. So that was an impressive shot. And at that point, people started realizing, oh wow, we have unleashed a monster because these people want freedom too. They're fighting for the same liberty we are. Then my favorite, James Armistead Bond. Just, just kidding. Uh, James Armistead Lafayette. He, he was a double O. He was a double agent, and he was the first American double agent. So nobody, nobody thought much of a, of a black guy. Like, ah, he's fine. He actually wound up in the, in the council of General Cornwallis. Lord Cornwallis, yeah, Lord Cornwallis, and General George Washington. He went back and forth gathering information, and I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. We would have lost the revolution had it not been for this one man. Why? Does anybody remember that in the movie The Patriot where all of a sudden the American Navy stopped, created a blockade that did not allow British reinforcements to come in? Guess who told them? Armistead Lafayette. He got the information, quickly got to General George Washington, and they were able to rout their navy, rout their infantry, and quell the rebellion. That was the last great battle of the revolution. That information forced Lord Cornwallis to surrender. And then from there, the war just kind of eventually died off. But that was the last great battle because of one man, a black man, a slave, who fought for liberty. And it was granted to him eventually. Not not the prettiest story, and I'm not proud of that. But he was a hero. He saved us. We are here, and where's the flag? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Oh, there it is, in there. We have that flag because of him. Had he not told us this, we would have been a British colony for longer. We owe our lives to him. America was not built on slavery, but was bought with the precious red blood of patriots, with the dream of liberty, and a will to fight for it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator 
with certain unalienable rights, of which of these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That is the American dream. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It was worth fighting for for these slaves. I think we need to stand up and fight for it too. Guys, that's all I've got. One, the only thing that I want to close with is this. Our founders believed inalienable rights were granted by God, which means no government can take them away. That was what they were fighting for. It was a process. They had to learn. You know, there was a, you, know, you might argue, well, you know, they're, they're a product of their times, but they were ahead of their times in seeking liberty. And we have much to be grateful for in that and much to fight for and preserve because we're now living more the way the Bible wanted us to and the way that we are supposed to treat one another. We are equal. Mr. Charles is like my grandfather. And I'm honored to have that conversation that pushed me to do this. And I hope that it brought you honor and that it will start healing this crap that we are allowing to continue. It won't end in violence. It will end with love, understanding, open hearts, ears, and a closed mouth. I love you guys. Happy 2021. May God grant mercy. And may we see peace swiftly soon in our days. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.